If you would, open your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. We'll be picking up where we left off. We're in a series titled Imagining the Kingdom. And um, we're working through that and, and, and the, from, from Hebrews 11 and now into 12. And, and really, it's a text that really causes us to, us to have to think about what it is that we are to be living for in, in a way that we, we, it gives us so many visual pictures, and today, probably more than any, but I think we often miss those pictures, so I want to draw our attention to them. Uh, and, and this same text, we're going to look at this weekend next. Today, I'm, I'm going to be looking at the background so that we understand what's happening, what's going on in the text, and then next week, we'll look at the details of the text and what those particular uh, lines mean. So we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at each line in the text per se, but we're going to look at what did we need to know when we got here in order to understand this text? And so that's more of what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, subtitle for this message is, You Have Come to a Mountain. And Hebrews chapter 12, uh, we'll begin reading in verse 18. So if you would read with me, I'll be reading from the New International Version. You can follow along in whichever text you have or on the screen. The preacher of Hebrews says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and, a sto- and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning in your word, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would enliven our hearts to see the images that are portrayed here and understand what they mean for us and help us to be transformed in how we live by it. In Jesus' name, amen. If I were to say to you this morning, you have not come to an inn in which they will tell you there is no room, but you have come to an inn in which there's plenty of room to be had. What story am I referencing? What, what idea is brought to your mind as I say that? 
the birth of Christ, right? I didn't have to say anything about the birth of Christ. I didn't mention a virgin birth. I didn't mention angels and shepherds. But there was enough in there that you know exactly what I was talking about. The author in the book of Hebrews is talking about another story today, one that ought to be as familiar to any of us, one that would have been as familiar to any Jew, and certainly ought to be as familiar to any Christian as that story is, but it's not. And so we read right through it and we miss the story. And so what I want to do today is draw our attention to that story so that we understand what it's a reference to, what it means for us, so that we can then grasp the, the, the imagery that's going on in the text. Every, every people, every country has an origin story. As Americans, we have ours. We repeat pieces of that story regularly and live according to how we imagine that story to be. Some of the pieces of that story include Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death by Patrick Henry. The British are coming. (laughs) Think of Paul Revere's ride. We sing about our freedom because of what happened when our flags broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight were so gallantly streaming. We, We imagine the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air with that star spangled banner still waving in the night or the land of the free and the home of the brave. We all know that story. Now, we weren't there for any of this, but it's our story. We tell the story. We think the story. We sing the story. We live out of that story. Because every one of us think we're free. And we may or may not be, but you're not in prison today, so you are, in some sense of the word, free. But we attribute it to that story. We envision ourselves boldly standing with Patrick Henry, Paul Revere rode for us. That battle which our flag remained gallantly streaming heralded our freedom. Israel, the location of God's earthly kingdom, had its own birth story as well. It's the story of Mount Sinai. Fire and smoke, darkness and tempest, gloom and death. You have come to a mountain. Now that takes imagination for all of us. The idea that you've come to a mountain, especially living here in Florida. <laughs> this is language about the birth of a people, a country, a kingdom. It's helpful to know that mountains in biblical language are associated with kingdoms. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. The mountain described first in our text is the birth story of Israel. This is the mountain you have not come to, but then it's going to give us another mountain that we have come to. They had come to Mount Sinai. The church's birth story is all about coming to Mount Zion, and the two mountains are intricately connected. Today is Pentecost Sunday. It's a day to remember our birth story as God's new covenant people. And it was Israel's birth story before us, but for different reasons. Our text speaks of two contrasting mountains. You have not come to this mountain, but you have come to that mountain. It requires imagination. In Israel's birth story, they had to imagine themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai in order to understand its impact on their lives. They were taught it from childhood onward, so it had formed their imagination, and they lived out of that imagination. They understood God as one to be feared, and if they got too close, they would die. 
They, they understood that. That was their story. By telling these believers that they had come to another mountain, the preacher of Hebrews is effectively telling them that they have a new birth story, that they are now a part of a people with a different origin story than the people of Israel. Mount Zion. For the person saturated in the Old Testament story, life was lived before Mount Sinai. This is the place where the Mosaic Covenant, otherwise known as the Law, was given. Sinai was the place, in a manner of speaking, from which the kingdom of God was ruled. They were under the law. Here in America, we live under what? The Constitution, right? Isn't that what we live under? Well, they had a Constitution. It was referred to as the law, different than our Constitution. But it's what they lived out of and what they lived under. You might remember that mountain, Sinai. If you've ever seen Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, you kind of have some sense (laughs) of what went on there, the Hollywood version anyway. God came down. There was fire and smoke, thunder and lightning, a tempest, black clouds, deep darkness. A barrier of some kind was put around it. We can read about this in Exodus 19 and 20, uh, Deuteronomy 4. This barrier is put around it because any animal or, or any human or animal that touched it had to either be shot through with an arrow or stoned. Isn't that pleasant? The whole mountain trembled violently, we read. All of life, people and animals, all of life was under the rule of this mountain with its fearful display of God's holiness and wrath. Life was lived in fear of God's presence since it brought wrath. People of that world knew that they had come to this first mountain. What the gospel revealed was that now they lived life before another mountain. Another mountain from which all of creation, all of life, would flow. Our text today is intricately connected to Pentecost. That's the background story. Just like the Christmas story was the background story to my imagined initial opening about ends. Well, that's the background story to this talk about mountains that's going on in Hebrews 12. We could say that our coming to this new mountain, Zion, happened on Pentecost. So let's explore this glorious mountain vision under three headings. There's three headings today are Pentecost and the first mountain. Second heading, Pentecost and the second mountain. And finally, Pentecost and the restoration of the kingdom. So let's begin under that first heading, Pentecost and the first mountain. What do you think of when you hear the word Pentecost? What do you think? What was that? Somebody? Tongues of fire, fire, right? That comes to mind. And of course, others might think of what? Speaking in tongues, miracles, prophesying. Still others might think of, um, uh, you know, the the, uh, apostles being thought that they were drunk. It was only nine in the morning. Um... And others might think, oh, it's about the upper room. We need to have an upper room experience, despite the fact that nowhere in the Bible does it say they were in the upper room when this happened. (laughs) But that's the story that some people go by. Okay. Whatever it is you think about when you hear Pentecost, you should know that Pentecost was Pentecost before it was Pentecost. (laughs) Okay? It's important to get that. Can you say that with me? Pentecost was Pentecost before it was Pentecost. It's real simple. You got that, right? Okay, let me explain. What I mean to say is, 
that what happened in Acts chapter 2 that we refer to when we say Pentecost, what happened then happened on a day that they already referred to as Pentecost because of something else. And we have to understand the something else if we're going to understand the thing that happened on that day more clearly. When we understand the something else, it makes a lot more sense out of what happened that day. Pentecost means 50th day. It's a pretty plain, plain word. And in Exodus 19, the Israelites arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai on the 49th day after they left Egypt, making the next day the 50th day, the day when the covenant with God was initiated in this whole uh, interaction that took place at Mount Sinai. On the Jewish festival calendar, there was also on that time, at that time, uh, the Feast of the First Fruits, and it was celebrated. But through the centuries, it increasingly became a time to celebrate their founding as a people, the reception of the Sinai Covenant, think Constitution if you must, and their renewed commitment to keeping it. We'll do better this year. They would get together, we're going to keep the covenant. We've kind of failed. It's kind of like our New Year's resolutions. They'd get together, we're going to do better, God. We're going to do better. They perpetually failed, but we're going to do better. We're going to do better. There was an expectation that when a future king, we call that the Messiah, the Christ, this future king, this coming promised king that would come and rule in righteousness, when he came and began to rule, the temple, which had been destroyed and rebuilt, that it would once again be filled with the glory of the Lord in an even greater way than ever before. A new covenant, a new contract with the people, a new constitution, if you will. On the day when all the Jews gather at the temple to celebrate how God came down in fire and wrote the law on tablets of stone, the disciples also gather at the temple, which is where Luke actually tells us they were, but at the temple, likely in Solomon's colonnade, and the Lord descends once again in fire that separates and comes to rest on each one of them. Now, what does this picture communicate? Sinai was the first covenant. This is the promised new covenant in which the law would be written with fire once again, but not on tablets of stone. This time it separates and touches on each one of them. Why? Because he's going to write the law in the individual's heart. It's different, but a clear picture. We read of this promise in Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And throughout the New Testament, we see this regular referencing of the, the, the law not being written on stone, but written on human hearts. That's the new covenant. It's interesting that the author of Hebrews, you know, we're, we're looking at chapter 12, but all the way back in chapter 8, he quotes this text from Jeremiah, because this is what he's talking about too, is this changing of the covenant, if you will. So when the disciples gathered that Pentecost day at the temple... The Spirit fill, filled the, the new temple. The glory of the Lord fills the temple again. Wind and fire, just like before, but this time it's wind and fire that doesn't abide in a temple that people go in and out of, but rather 
in a people who are the temple. A new temple. Pentecost is the beginning of God restoring the kingdom to Israel. The relationship between Pentecost and Mount Sinai then is this. When the people gathered to recommit themselves to the Sinai covenant on that particular Pentecost, God made a new covenant written by the fire of the Spirit on their hearts and filled the new temple, the church, with His Spirit. And the promise to do that was always summed up and pointing to this thing called Mount Zion. And so that's the second mountain. So Pentecost in the second mountain. If all we had in our Bibles was the law, and then we jump to the New Testament. We have the book of Exodus, for instance, and then we have the New Testament, the day of Pentecost, Acts, the book of Acts. With that story of Pentecost, we might refer to Pentecost as the new Sinai. Because at the first Sinai, you had a covenant where the law was written on stone. At the second Sinai, we might say you have it where it's written on heart. But that's not all we have. We have the prophets as well, right? We have the historical books. We have the wisdom books. But we have this section called the prophets. And the Old Testament prophets envisioned another mountain that was similar in ways to Sinai. But it was transformed. It was radically different than Mount Sinai. And they called it Mount Zion. Now... Mount Zion's a, it, it's, it's a little slippery. Um, trying to nail down a definition is a little bit like nailing jello to a wall. Uh, it, 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 because that's how imagery works and symbolism works, especially in the Bible and the prophets. I mean, they would use it this way a little and that way a little, and you have to kind of blend it all together and see what you come up with. So think of it as a smoothie. And Mount Zion was a, a hill. I mean, as far as mountains go, it's maybe more like Mount Dora than, than a big mountain. Certainly not Everest by any definition. But it was also used to speak of the capital city of Jerusalem, the Davidic kingship. It was used to speak of the temple, which was apparently built on that hill, wherein the throne room of God is, or the source of God's rule, the kingdom of God, in other words, we could say. In the uh, IVP... Um, Dictionary of the Old Testament Prophets, it says that we can draw two conclusions from the Old Testament regarding Zion. First, God has chosen Zion for his holy abode, place to to dwell in other words. Second, Zion is protected by God by virtue of his presence there. And then they say this, what is emphasized in the prophets in relation to Zion is God's cosmic rule and authority. Cosmic. Everything in heaven and on earth. God's cosmic rule and authority. Sinai, the first mountain, and Zion, the second mountain, are not geographically related. There's no geographic relationship between them. Like, you can't put them on a map and go, okay, what's the relationship? It wouldn't matter. It's inconsequential. But in meaning, they are. There's a relationship between what happened on Mount Sinai and what was promised to happen on Mount Zion. Isaiah 4 helps make this clear. Before we read it, um, I want to just point out that in Exodus 19, at the foot of Mount Sinai, the first thing the people did when they were told that God was going to make this covenant with them is that they washed themselves with water. They cleansed themselves. Now, this ceremonial washing with water takes on another name in the New Testament. It's called baptism 
Okay? That's the origin that we have of baptism right there in Exodus 19. Okay? We're all familiar with that. And we read this in Isaiah 4. Speaking of the day when Mount Zion, when God restores his people, it says, The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Spirit of judgment and spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, uh, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter from, uh, and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and, and rain. Now, that's Mount Zion. The Lord will create over all of Mount Zion this, this fire, this, this smoke, um, this shelter, and so forth. But note that here, instead of cleansing with water, we have cleansing with fire. Or instead of Baptism with water, we have baptism with fire. Does that sound familiar? Did not John the Baptist make a reference to this? When he said, the one who comes after me will not baptize you with water, but with the Spirit and fire, right? So we're familiar with that language, and it comes from this verse. Here we have the same visual imagery at Mount Zion that we had on Sinai, a cloud of smoke and flaming fire, but a very different purpose. Instead of causing fear and possible death, the smoke and the fire act as a shelter and shade from the heat of the day, a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. Well, that's different. The imagery of Zion is similar to Sinai, but the meaning is radically transformed. On Pentecost, that baptism with the Spirit and fire came... And the new creation, which had begun with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, would now begin to spread by the Spirit's work in God's people. It all happened at the temple, the symbol of earthly Zion. Uh, Again, uh, uh, gleaning from the IVP Dictionary of Old Testament Prophets, it goes on to say, Zion represents God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Zion represents God's people living in God's place under God's rule and absorbs the grandeur of Israel's Sinai theophany, a theophany is just a fancy word for the appearance of God, into a new vision of God's universal reign in creation. Sinai was intended to provide for God's people to live in God's place under God's rule, but but that covenant was broken and eventually, as the book of Hebrews tells us, done away with. Zion represents the new covenant. And as, again, the dictionary, uh, IVP Dictionary of Old Testament Prophets adds, Zion is a symbol of new creation and redeemed humanity. A symbol of new creation and redeemed humanity that lives before God without sin. That lives before God without sin. Death or pain because God rules in its midst. Zion is where God rules in creation. Listen, Zion is the future. Yet we have already come to Mount Zion according to the book of Hebrews. When did we get there? The day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the future for humanity began. Now ultimately it began at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We get that. 
But for the rest of us, it began on the day of Pentecost. We get included in by the Spirit's work on the day of Pentecost. With the resurrection of Jesus and His ascension to rule over everything in heaven and on earth, it was time to make a new covenant with a remade people. And Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, and when he was explaining to the people, he says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to say that when Joel said, in the last days, these things will happen. Wait a minute. He was saying that the last days had begun on the day of Pentecost. What's he saying? He says the future is here. The the future is here. We're already living in the future as those who come together on the first day of the week celebrating Christ's resurrection. Why? Because that is the new creation. People ask me all the time, do you think we're living in the last days? My answer is yes, but probably not for the same reasons you think we're living in the last days. I'm not looking at the news and I'm not trying to chart out maps and figure out who did what and what the whole geopolitical situation is because that has nothing to do with it. But I am looking at the book of Acts chapter 2. I am looking at the whole New Testament, the whole Old Testament for that matter, that spoke of a day when the Messiah would reign and guess what? He began reigning over everything in heaven and earth then. Okay. Remember, in Jesus' kingdom... God has come, is coming now, and as we live under his reign, he is coming now. He will come in fullness one day. We pray your kingdom come. Now, we know that it has come because he came. He was present. He's reigning over everything in heaven and earth, according to Ephesians chapter uh, 1. At the right hand of God, we prayed from that earlier. We know that, but yet he comes increasingly more here as we do his will on earth as it is in heaven. And yet one day he'll come in fullness. Your kingdom come. And that leads to our third heading, Pentecost and the restoration of the kingdom. Again, if we knew this story as well as we know the Christmas story, you could just read Hebrews and you'd get it. You wouldn't even have to have anybody explain all this to you, but we don't know this story. And so it's a little bit hard. Like if, if the first time you had ever heard about like, you know, Jesus being born of a virgin and, and angels singing to shepherds and, and all that. If, if that was the first time this morning, your brain would be kind of twisted up going, what in the world is he talking about? So if your brain is a little twisted up this morning, just know that it's because we haven't heard this story as often as we should. And the only cure for that is to start hearing this story probably every year on Pentecost so that we can get it down inside our souls. Amen. Pentecost and the restoration of the kingdom. Now, earlier I made the comment that mountains in biblical language were symbolic of kingdoms. A couple of simple examples. You're familiar with the temptation of Jesus right after he was baptized. He went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And we read this one. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. But notice the connection. He takes him to a high mountain to offer him the kingdom's of the world. Why? Because in their mind that was connected. And, and it doesn't specify which mountains. It's just the point that if you're getting all the kingdoms, it has to be what? A very high mountain. Right? A low mountain. It has to be a very high mountain because it's all the kingdoms of the world. 
In Hebrews 12, this connection is made explicit. After saying, we have not come to one mountain, but the other, Zion, the preacher then declares, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Well, when did you say we were receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken? When he said, you've come to a mountain. That's when he said, you're receiving the kingdom that cannot be shaken, because they made that connection automatically that we don't. Okay? Having come to Mount Zion is summed up since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And in Acts chapter 2, the kingdom language is not, it's there, but it's, it's not as obvious to us. However, remember, our Bibles weren't written with chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 headings above these sections. Just take that chapter 2 heading out and back up to the beginning of the story in chapter 1, and all of a sudden the whole thing is about the kingdom. And it becomes rather clear. In Acts 1 which sets up Acts 2. There are three things in Acts 1 that set up Acts 2 and Pentecost so that we can understand what is happening with the coming of the Spirit and the New Covenant inauguration on Pentecost. Three things relevant to the kingdom, to, to kingdom inauguration. First, we read this in, in, in verse 3 of chapter 1, that during the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. So, Read this, it says, He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus has just died and been raised. He's going to depart once and for all until the day of His return, which thus far is almost 2,000 years. Could be another 2,000. Could be another 10,000. Could be another 30. We don't know. We have no idea when He's coming back. Could be next week. I get that. But whatever it is, it's been a long time already. Enough said that we can say that surely he's got 40 days to talk about the most important thing he could talk about. And what does he choose to talk about? The kingdom of God for 40 days. Because we have to understand the kingdom of God. We have an example of one such conversation. After almost 40 days talking about the kingdom of God, the disciples asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, Simple question we can't pass up. What kingdom are they asking about? What kingdom are they saying, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Which kingdom? The kingdom of God. Are you going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel at this time? Some think Jesus dismisses their question, but he doesn't. To their question about when, Jesus tells them how. He says, it is not for you to know when. It's not for you to know the time. But here is the how. The how what? The how I'm going to restore the kingdom. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, Pentecost, and will be my witnesses in the capital city, Jerusalem, and in the southern kingdom, Judea, and then in the northern kingdom, Samaria. Notice how Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria are all kingdom-related words to the Jewish mind. He's answering their question about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. It's going to begin when you receive power. By the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses in the capital city, in the southern kingdom, in the northern kingdom. And after you've conquered the traditional boundaries of Israel, you'll go to the ends of the earth, because why? Zion is God's cosmic rule. He'll rule over everything in heaven and on earth. The ends of the earth. Second thing we see in uh, Acts chapter 1, that is relevant to understanding the kingdom and what's happening in chapter 2, we read in verse 9 of Acts 1. It's the ascension. 
After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Okay. Now, this verse expresses what is arguably the climactic event of the gospel in the most restrained manner possible. I'm going to say that again. This verse expresses what is arguably the, the climactic event of the gospel in the most restrained manner possible. For the one who has eyes to see, let him see, because there aren't many hints given here. Since a gospel, and we cover this in our foundations class actually, but it's important when we say what is the gospel, to understand that the word gospel had a definition at the time when these things were called the gospel. And a gospel was, by definition, uh, in their day, the story of a ruler's arrival and ascension to power. And, and one could argue that the ascension to power is the climax of the story. That's when they begin to really reign. Which is why these things we have called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called gospels, because they are a story of Christ's coming, arrival, and his ascension through the resurrection and ascension to power. That's why they're called Gospels, because they are indeed that. So, this event, Christ ascending into heaven, hidden by a cloud, is described this way. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. If it weren't for the fact that we have a lot of other scriptures telling us what was really happening, like the one in Ephesians chapter 1, that he's seated at God's right hand over every power and dominion and every name that can be named and on and on and on. Thank God we have those descriptions because if this was it, we'd all be debating where Jesus is right now. I think he's riding around in a jet plane up in the clouds or something. I mean, who knows? Somebody would have proposed it, no doubt. Notice that here in Acts 1-9, there's no fanfare, no tinsel, no flash. And yet, we know he's raised to God's right hand to rule over everything. From which, from, from that place, from where he will send the Holy Spirit and his gifts, we read in other verses. So, Christ's ascension and reign are necessary in order for the new covenant constitution of the king to be put into effect. In order for us to come to Mount Zion, we have to have a king who is reigning over everything in heaven and on earth. And the third thing that happens in Acts chapter 1 that's relevant to Pentecost in the kingdom of God is this funny little story, this really weird story that we have in Acts 1 about the naming or the identifying of the 12th apostle. You know the story, right? Peter goes on this long explanation of why they need to replace Judas and how Judas died and on and on and on. And then what do they do? Well, here's a couple of guys. We don't know which one. Here, we'll throw some dice. I mean, cast some lots. And figure out who it's going to be. And like for us, this story is bizarrely weird, right? And it begs the question, why is this story about the choosing of Matthias to be an apostle in this book? Now, you could just simply say, well, it's in there because it's true. That doesn't work. Because there are literally tens of thousands of things that could have been included that were not, that were true. I mean, the book of Acts covers a very long period of time, some 30 years. And so very little is included of what actually happened. So you, everything included had to be included for a reason. So then the most logical thing, reason we might suspect is, well, we need to know who Matthias is because he's going to show up in the rest of the story, right? 
if he's an apostle, we better know who he is and that he's an apostle. The problem with that is that he never showed up, shows up again. He disappears from the story. So why is Matthias in the story to begin with? Why do we get this weird story? I mean, if, you know, usually when you're trying to tell a story of your origins, you try to leave out the embarrassing stuff, and this would certainly fit that category for most of us anyway today. What's the relevance of this to the whole story? Well, in the Jewish mind, in order for kingdom restoration to occur, there have to be 12 heads, like the 12 tribes. Now, at this point, there aren't 12 tribes. Ten of them are missing. They've got two of the tribes. How are we ever going to have a restored kingdom? Well, we have 12 apostles. Oops. See, there's this problem of the missing Judas because he's now dead. And we have to solve the missing Judas problem. And so we have the story of how they picked a 12th to replace him so that they could proceed with the inauguration of the kingdom, Pentecost, a new covenant, which is why that story immediately proceeds. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, see, it's important that that had been completed. Let's see. What does all this have to do with me? Well, if you come back next week. <laughs> no, 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 no. Here's a question we all need to ask. Have you lived as if the story of Mount Sinai with its fear and doom were your origin story rather than the story of Mount Zion with its life and peace? Which story are you living out of? Which kingdom are you living under? Which rule? The story of fear, darkness, and gloom, and death, is that the story? The the story of a God who cannot be approached, is that the story? Notice how different this coming in fire and cloud at Zion is from that at Sinai. At Zion, it's a shelter and a shade from the heat of day and a refuge from the storm and rain. Which of these mountains describes the story from which you live your life? Pentecost is the origin story of a new people. We call this the church. It is the people of the coming kingdom. A people who live in the ways of that kingdom now, speculating on the king's return and rewards. This is why one author suggested that church is the most political word we have. The church is a political community. Not in the pedestrian, Republican, and Democrat way, but in a much more encompassing way. This is about a king and his new way of life. This politic is... Not about voting, it's about living in a new economy according to a new story with a new king. It's a lengthy quote, but I want to turn our attention to focus here. It's, it's out of the book, Becoming a Missionary Church, but it's a, it's a description of the gospel. The authors say this, The Bible is a story of cosmic history. It begins in creation and ends in new creation. Christ stands at the center, disclosing, accomplishing, and making present in his life, death, and resurrection where universal history is going. It's going to resurrection. That is the gospel. At the center of the biblical story is a community that has been chosen to embody and announce God's redemptive purpose to the world. 
They bear the gospel of the kingdom in their lives, deeds, and words. This is to describe us, by the way. Together they experience kingdom salvation and point and witness to the new creation that is coming. The future that is already beginning to appear in our lives as we walk with Jesus. That is what Hebrews 12 is about. That is what Pentecost is about. Those who trust in Jesus and join themselves to His people are that community that has been chosen to embody and announce God's redemptive purpose to the world. They bear the gospel of the kingdom in their lives, deeds, and words. The question for you this morning is, are you a part of that community? Are you still standing at the foot of Mount Sinai with all its fear and condemnation? Or are you standing before Mount Zion with a new king? In a way made possible by a new covenant. Cleansed not with water, but with the Spirit's fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, only Your Spirit can draw each of us to come to the water and drink. And so, for those that may not have entered into this kingdom, have not come yet to the foot of Mount Zion, I pray that you would draw them to that place and each of us to keep remembering that that is where we gather, that is where we are, that we go back to that place every time we gather because we stand before an eternal community. We go back to the future which was expressed on Pentecost, which was seen and experienced for the first time on Pentecost. Lord, help us to be that futuristic people who live in the reign of Christ here and now.